Thank you, Eunice. Right. Um, now, our guest, this, our guest this morning is a very special person um, for two reasons. Firstly, she's my little sister. Now, now I say little sister uh, because in families it's very important to always remember the order. But whenever I was, when I was about 12 or 13, um, she overtook me. And uh, <laughs> she's, not been, she's been taller than me ever since then. Uh, not that I'm bitter. Um, uh, she, obviously, I got the duff jeans from our parents. Um, uh, and when you meet Rachel, you'll realize actually she got a lot of the other good ones as well. Um, so anyway, so, but, but, but the other reason why it's a great, why she's a very special person is that she's been to many, many of the countries in the world that we've mentioned so far. In fact, in the quiz, the only one she's not worked in was Nor- is Northern Ireland. All the other places she's been to. And in our family, uh, if you're of my generation, you, you, if you hear the name Kate Aidy, you'll, you, it'll, it'll conjure up in your mind. Uh, she was a, a journalist who you used to go anywhere where there was a disaster. And we used to call Rachel uh, the Kate Aidy of our family. Uh, she used to go after the disasters had happened. Um, so... Anyway, so it's a great pleasure to her. Rachel's worked all over the world. She's worked with Tear Fund. She's worked with the British government. She's worked with the UN. She's worked with the Red Cross, um, very largely in relief situations. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to welcome Rachel up, and I'm going to interview her. <laughs> so, Rachel, you have a seat there, and I've got a few questions which I'm going to ask you. Um, your experiences. So, uh, Rachel, currently, where are you? Where are you working, or what countries are you working with? Well, currently, I'm living in London, so um, not such a disaster zone. Um, and I'm working for the Department for International Development. So that's a department of the British government. And my role at the moment is um, working on our relief program to Syria. Unfortunately, none of us are allowed into Syria, which is why I live in London and work from London. But that, of course, provides challenges of its own when you're working in a country that you can't visit. I am able to go to Lebanon, to Jordan, and to Turkey, all of which border Syria. So I can get close, but I can't quite get there. Great, great. And Rachel, just to sort of as a backdrop, um, where... When did you start doing um, relief work? Um, when and where did you start? How long ago was it? Well, incredibly, it was 30 years ago. It's hard to imagine it was that long ago, but it was. And I started with Tear Fund. So um, I have a big heart for the work of Tear Fund. Uh, Tear Fund not only helped me um, start out in this career, but also provided with me with so much... Um, richness of understanding and love and compassion which I hope has carried through as I've moved on from working to Tear Fund with other organisations but I still continue to follow and support the work of Tear Fund very much. Um, and in my memory is it was, it was in Iraq, there was something to do with the Kurds in Iraq that, that you first went to, is that right? That's right, yes. Um, It was a long time ago, and what we call the first Gulf War, um, when Saddam Hussein persecuted the Kurdish population and they fled. Um, 
into the mountains bordering between Iran and Iraq. And it was at the late summer, and it was all very well in the late summer, you have fairly good weather. But by the winter, these people were living up in the deep, deep snow in the mountains between Iran and Iraq. And I went with Tear Fund um, to support our aid program to the Kurdish displaced population. So that was the very beginning, yeah. And then I well remember coming visiting you in Hong Kong because uh, I wanted to visit Hong Kong. Um, but you were working with the Vietnamese boat people, weren't you? Yeah, that's that. right. Again, um, probably only the older amongst us here will remember uh, the Vietnamese boat people who fled Vietnam in tiny little ships or little boats called junks and crossed the sea to Hong Kong thinking that um, Hong Kong would offer them not just relief and protection, but actually jobs and money. And uh, that was not the case. In fact, the Vietnamese people in Hong Kong got banged up into detention centers, and life was very grim for them there. Um, and yeah, Tim came to visit me in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, I was very brave. Um, um, <laughs> and, and, and then shortly after that, uh, there was the Rwandan genocide, and you were involved somewhere... It, in helping after that, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. Between Hong Kong and Rwanda, I went to Bosnia, but perhaps oh, right. we'll come to that. Um, the Rwanda genocide, uh, yes, the, it was a, again, not many people perhaps remember that now, but it was a situation where uh, a tribal warfare between the predominant, the, the two major tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and uh, the Hutus uprose and killed many, 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 many Tutsis. And then uh, Tutsis that had been outside the country came flooding back in, and essentially the Hutus had to flee out. So the Rwanda exodus of refugees was predominantly Hutu, and they fled to Tanzania and to uh, what we now call the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, and I worked in one of the large, large refugee camps in Tanzania. Great. So, um, so that's a little bit of what's happened in, in the past. But I, I think t this morning we want to look at uh, uh, Yemen as a, as a key thing. And I know you've been, uh, you, you were working for the government on Yemen, is that right? What was your role there? Yeah, that's right. I was working on Yemen in 2014 and 15. And back then we were able to go to Yemen. So I've been to Yemen twice. And in fact, the second time was December 2014, which was just when uh, the current uptick in conflict was beginning. Um, and we can see Yemen here on this, this map, as Tim said. I'm glad you left that one up. So it's at the, t at the bottom tip of um, Saudi Arabia. Um, so do you want me to go into... Well, yes, I was going to say... Well, uh, yes, so that's great. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, the first question is really, can you summarize for us, um, not everybody knew where Yemen was, recognize it on the map, but most people have heard the word. Can you tell us just what's happening in, yeah. in Yemen? Well, firstly, we often think of this part of the Arabian Gulf as very wealthy with oil, but actually Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East. It was the poorest country in the Middle East before the conflict, the recent conflict started. Uh, so it didn't start from a very high economic level. And essentially uh, what's happened is there's been years and years and years of bad governance, of um, leaders just taking the money for themselves and their elites and favouring their own tribes and, and areas, not getting 
attention that should get attention. So a lot of neglect and a lot of poverty. And so there was a lot of discontent. Um, and a tribal country, as I say. And there was a, a sort of tribal group called the Houthis that were predominantly in north of Yemen. And they had been having constant spats with the government. But in late 2014, the Houthis really uh, gained traction and overthrew the legitimate government in Sana'a, the capital. Um, the uh, government fled to Saudi Arabia. So you now have the ex-government in Saudi Arabia and the Houthis in control of most of Yemen. Uh, there is a little subsection of southern Yemen uh, which actually wants to break away. And in fact, historically, there was a north and a south Yemen. They were joined together, but there's still people who feel very unhappy about that and they would still like... Uh, secession in the south. So you've got a little grumbling secessionist movement in the south. So the Houthis don't control the whole of the country, but they do control Sana'a, the capital. The government in exile then teamed up with the Saudis, and the Saudis are now heavily, heavily bombing Yemen, particularly Sana'a and the major port of Hodeida. Now, Yemen, as I said, being the poorest country in the Middle East, also a land where there's very, very little rainfall is unable to grow its own crops to feed itself. 90% of Yemen's food was imported. So you can imagine if you blockade and bomb the port, then no food can get in. And so the real major catastrophe in Yemen right now is starvation. And these are people who are starving um, not because they need to, but because their food physically cannot reach them. There is enough food in, in, in trucks, in ships, around the world. There's enough money. It's not a problem of lack of money. It's a problem of lack of access. So uh, Yemen is really being starved. And unfortunately, the uh, weapons that uh, the Saudis use are British and American. So other countries are implicated, and not least ourselves. The Saudis' uh, big argument is that the Houthis are supported by Iran. And so you have a proxy war being played out here, really. It's not about Yemen anymore. Actually, they don't really care about Yemen. Yemen is very poor and insignificant. But they do care about their neighbor, Iran. And so you have the global superpowers amassing around poor little Yemen. And actually, who suffers? And it's the, the people of Yemen and, and, and obviously mostly the children. Right. So it's quite complicated um, it, would it be easy for us here to sort of have a little box and say these are the goodies um, and these are the baddies and then, then, we know, then we know what's going on? Well, there are no goodies and no baddies, are there? As I've said, I think it's enormously complicated. Um, I think it's really about the gainers and the losers. And there are many people who seek to gain by prolonging the war in Yemen. Um, you know, perhaps our own government gains because uh, we get to uh, sell weapons to the Saudis. The Saudis get to demonstrate their superior power in the Middle East by bombing Yemen. So they're all the gainers. And the losers, as I said before, um, the children of Yemen, the people of Yemen, people who lose their homes that are being shelled, bombed, destroyed, and the people who are not getting food. The slide up now is uh, Sana'a, the capital, um, which was actually very unusual uh, for Middle East. It has a, a very unusual architectural style. Yemen is, a, is, is a, a very distinct country culturally, 
uh, very different from the rest of the Middle East. And this picture is of the port Hodeida, just to give a demonstration as to the destruction that the Saudi um, campaign is able to, to do. And as I say, not only destroying and blowing up all of the port equipment so that there's no cranes or no heavy lifting material that can offload the ships that come in carrying food and grain, but actually the Saudi uh, Navy is also blockading Hodeida port. So actually ships cannot get in. So, so Rachel, what's going to happen? How many? Um, what's the population of Yemen, and what uh, you know? What's the extent of the uh, the, the, the disaster? Well, the, Yemen is actually the world's worst humanitarian crisis. If you were to ask people uh, what do they think is the worst crisis in the world today, you'd probably almost all say Syria, or something, because that's what we see on the TV. But actually, in terms of numbers. Uh, Yemen is way, way, way worse in terms of numbers of people in need. So 75% of the population of Yemen, that's about 22 million people, uh, need humanitarian assistance just to live. So it's very much the forgotten, forgotten crisis, and it's unrelenting. As I say, it's now been going on since 2014, late 2014. And every year uh, we have been saying... It can't get any worse, but it does. And this picture here is of uh, a child starving, a severe acute malnutrition. 250,000 children, that's a quarter of a million of Yemeni children, uh, will die by the end of this year um, in the current crisis because we cannot get food to them. So it's, it's, it's a pretty disastrous situation. Um, okay, thanks. Rachel, um, what's, what's Yemen like for Christians? Yemen is predominantly, predominantly Muslim. So only 0.5% of Yemenis are not Muslim. But I'm very glad that Eunice prayers, she talked about the small, small percentage of Christians, and that is growing. But in this particular crisis, Christians are not more persecuted or more targeted than anybody else. Um, they are very much a part of this crisis. And so it's all of Yemenis that we are concerned about. Um, all of the people are at risk of um, not having any food, not having access to water, and of, at risk of being bombed by aerial bombardment. Rachel, I'd love, I'd love to hear more and more about Yemen, but um, I'm going to... Time-wise, we, there are one or two things we want to ask questions on. So I'm going to quickly say what's, what's currently happening in Syria. Right, I'm just going to move swiftly through to a slide on the map. Oh, there we go. Can everybody see that? Perhaps it's not a very good uh, resolution. So this is Syria, and this is the country that I'm working on at the moment. And as I say, it's very much in the news because Syria probably means more to the world, sadly, than Yemen does, and that's why it gets um, a higher priority focus. But the needs of the people are not as many as the needs there are in, in, in Yemen, but that is not to uh, under, underplay how bad things are in Syria. Syria is... There are 12 million people who need humanitarian assistance in Syria. Um, 
5.3 million people have left Syria as refugees living in other parts of the world, and they're essentially really the luckier ones. And then there are 6.2 million people inside Syria who've been displaced from their homes. So they're still in Syria, but they may move from place to place to escape the worst of the conflict. So it's the largest displacement um, crisis at the moment. And as we know, it's still ongoing. I'm concerned right now, particularly about northeast Syria, where um, the internal conflict between uh, the IS or the remnant of IS has been going on. And we prayed as well for them. Many of the families um, of the IS fighters have been displaced. And there are a lot of refugee camps, or rather displacement camps. You really only are a refugee if you cross an international boundary. So internally displaced people, um, many of whom are the women and children of the IS fighters. So these camps are about 90% women and children. And of that, 25% are children under the age of five. And they are living in the most appalling conditions. And I think my next slide is, this is Al Hol displacement camp in northeast Syria, which some of you, if you watch um, some of the more in-depth news reportage, will have seen. And uh, this is where there is um, very poor water and sanitation, uh, very little access to health care. And some of you will remember the news story of Shamima Begum, the well-known British girl who fled with her IS husband. She gave birth Uh, to two children in Syria previously who died. And uh, this year, in early um, March, I think, she gave birth to her third child in this camp here, Al-Hol, who sadly also died of pneumonia. Um, So all of these things are really unacceptable, and it just would not happen if we were able to um, get better access and provide the food, the water, the the shelter, uh, the immunizations and the healthcare that's that's necessary. Thanks, Rach. So, when you're looking at all this, how, how does it make you feel seeing innocent people suffering for the actions of their leaders? Dreadful. I'm going to go back and just show you some pictures. Uh-huh. Let's start with that one. I think not to show you some of the most of the gory and awful suffering pictures I've seen, but I think just to give a little flavor of how terrible life is for people that live in conflict or in disasters um, that we have no conception of ourselves. So these are um, pictures from Sierra Leone um, of people who have had their hands and feet chopped off not because they've done anything wrong, but just because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time in a war. This is Liberia, a country where in the rainy season, the roads become like this. So a journey that should take maybe half an hour can take 10 hours. And I put that picture in linked with this picture because in Liberia, I worked in a camp where we had many, many children like this who were extremely malnourished um, and unlike in Yemen where we couldn't get to them in Liberia we could get to them and we needed to get them to the feeding centre that 
was how we had to transport them or the road we needed to transport them along to the feeding centre. So not only are they malnourished, but they're suffering from a country where there are absolutely appalling roads. Um, this is a picture of Dominica, and that is in the Caribbean. And many of you will remember the hurricanes in the Caribbean in September 2017. And we heard about them a lot here because we heard about how terrible it was for um, Antigua and the British Virgin Islands and um, many of those wealthy people that had homes in some of the lovely Caribbean islands lost their internet and uh, their, their cars and their electricity went down. And, and actually, a lot of them, their, their homes were trashed and it wasn't good. But actually, for countries like Dominica, that many people don't know about in the Caribbean, that don't have wealthy tourism, this was, this was the result of the Caribbean um, uh, hurricanes. So completely lost everything. They lost their homes, they lost their boats, and their boats were for fishing, and that's what they lived off. So people lost absolutely everything. But again, uh, you know, we have a double standard in the Caribbean. Um, we were perhaps more concerned about the people who shouted loudest rather than the people whose needs were greatest. And uh, I had a picture of... Yeah. And that is Kabul in Afghanistan. And I think everybody knows uh, that Afghanistan is a country that has long, long, long suffered um, with, with war and conflict. And I wanted to show another one of... That's it. That's the Pakistan earthquake. So Afghanistan and Pakistan, two countries that are intrinsically linked through um, the Al-Qaeda network and countries that I have worked in both. And again, countries where you have very poor governance. So it's very heartbreaking to see natural disasters as well as conflicts happen in countries where there is also poor governance going on. And that is a massive factor. Where you have strong governments, then they can usually um, respond well to natural disasters like this. And they have um, armies that are controlled and are able to um, keep good control and governance around the country. And people have the freedom to speak out. But when, like our country, we have freedom of speech and democracies where you can have... Um, marches and demonstrations without repression. These are really valuable and important things. But in Pakistan and Afghanistan, when you don't have these, then any disaster or conflict is many, many, many times worse. So yes, it makes me feel very angry when you see innocent people suffering for the actions of their leaders, because it doesn't need to be like that. Um, personally, I've always prayed for two things, and that is Firstly, compassion. Compassion that I wouldn't become inured to the suffering that I see um, because you do need a certain detachment to be able to help, to, to do things. You can't just crumple in a heap and cry. You need to be able to be productive, um, but not to lose the compassion. And so I've always prayed for that. And secondly, for wisdom, because however much experience you have or much training or much knowledge of how you do your job and what you do there's always something that happens that you have no clue what to do about um, 
and so compassion and wisdom have been the two ways that I, I feel I've coped. Um, great. Um, Rachel, how do you feel, how do, how do we as Christians, how do we find hope when every Middle Eastern crisis or other crisis is just followed by another one? Well, firstly, I've got a picture here of Pakistan, and this is the polio program. And I worked on um, the eradication of polio program. And this is unfortunately still going on. We haven't yet eradicated polio from Pakistan, but it's ongoing and it will happen one day. So I'd put that up because actually it's a little sign of hope of there's always something that you can do. And um, I'm a trained nurse and a midwife, so that provided me with a skill which helped get me into this work. And I think, firstly, there's the way to have hope is to always know that there's some things, however small, that can have a big effect. Um, giving a few polio drops to a few children can ultimately lead to uh, complete immunity in the population and the eradication of polio, much as we have here in this country. So that's, that's great. But more broadly, yeah, how do we have hope as Christians? Um, I think we have to recognize that we do live in a fallen and a sinful world and we're never actually going to have a perfect world. Um, Nothing is going to be perfect on this earth. We will always have wars. Jesus said we'll always have the poor with us. We'll also always have conflict. But I think, as I said, little things can make a difference and it's important to remember that... um, we here, even if we can't go, we can pray. And I was particularly pleased to hear Eunice's really uh, heartfelt prayers this morning because prayer can make a difference. And I, I think we don't always realize how valuable the power of prayer is and the power of corporate prayer. And I just wanted to read a little article because so I'm not sure that our country prays today as much as perhaps it did in wartime Um, in the First and Second World Wars. And I'm just going to read a little article about a wartime miracle from the Second World War, just to perhaps encourage us all as to how powerful prayer can be, even in the seemingly um, entrenchable war in the Middle East. When When King George VI called for a national prayer day at the time of the Dunkirk crisis, in May 1914, When France had fallen and the British army was trapped at Dunkirk, where they were to be annihilated, George VI called for a national day of prayer to plead for divine intervention. So widespread and so deep was faith in God that literally millions of people flocked into churches to pray. The special service held in Westminster Abbey was so inundated that there is a famous photograph showing a queue a quarter of a mile long as people desperately tried to get into the abbey to pray. That's how important and how widespread faith was in that generation. They knew God was real and they knew he could be petitioned through heartfelt prayer. The result of that national day of prayer was, of course, the miracle of Dunkirk, without which none of us would be here today. So I find that incredibly encouraging but also quite sobering because how many of this country would flock into churches today for to pray for a war <laughs> yes yeah, sure I, 
Our time is running out, Rach, but I want to ask you, um, those of us um, who are here in the West and we don't see these things, how can we um, pray for, how can we see these things and pray for them without being naive? Yeah, that's a great question, Tim, and I think uh, Eunice led us in some great prayers that were not naive. Um, I think generally, read, follow the global news. Um, Twitter is great. I don't know if uh, people here use Twitter much, but there are some people who have real deep knowledge and interest um, in areas like the Middle East. And uh, some of these people have great insightful things to say, and I find Twitter a very useful way of finding out the truth. Try to see all perspectives. As I said, it's, uh, it's never a matter of goodies and baddies. There are actually a lot of uh, nuanced issues underneath. So try to see all round and be very specific about the prayer asks. Get involved in groups that pray. I think group prayer is much, much better than prayer alone, although prayer alone is good, but gathering together in groups to participate. Visit. Um, if people are interested in the Middle East, then you can get to Israel, you can get to Jordan and, and visit as close as you can. And I think that really is eye-opening to see some of the issues in the Middle East, not least the Israeli-Palestinian um, issue. And perhaps getting more close to home and write to your MP, um, most close to home, as I say, in, in the world that I'm working, which is, which is the political sphere. If you write to your MP... Um, if you're concerned about um, British weapons being used by the Saudis bombing Yemen, then write to your MP. But pray, yeah. Okay, Rach, I've got 100 more questions here, but we haven't got enough time. So basically, um, uh, I, I will remind people that, that you this, this evening in the service, there will be an opportunity to ask Rachel questions, um, and it's much more free and um, and. She'll just answer anything, anything you want. Um, so, um, so I'm just going to pray, and then we're, and then we'll have a final song and finish up. Oh, well, then we'll, I'll pray, <laughs> and then Andrew, will you finish? Yeah, okay. So I'll just pray for Rachel. Lord, I thank you for the ways you've worked um, in Rachel's life over many years. Thank you for the way she has cared for so many of your children, and in so many places. Continue to be with her and her husband, Peter, and empower them wherever they go and take your love to others. Amen. Let's give a round of applause there to Rachel. Do please join us through in the hall for tea and coffee if you're able to do that and uh, come back tonight and get the opportunity to ask some more questions then as well.